I have said before in getting up here that uh, being prayed for before you deliver a sermon is an inspiring thing, but I've gone to a new level today. I got a fist pump from one of my brothers before I came up, so thank you. John mentioned earlier that we're preparing for an elder search. It is a time when we need to be thinking about the leadership of this congregation and the future path that we will take. In anticipation of that, John, last week, preached an excellent sermon talking about the qualifications that we should be looking for in our elders. As we proceed in the search, I challenge you to go back and take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 to review those qualifications because that's an important part of the process. But I also want to challenge you to look beyond those scriptures and think a little deeper, to think about the task, what Paul describes as a noble task, for which those qualifications are so necessary, they're essential. If we don't pause to consider what it means to be an elder, then we can easily treat those verses in Timothy and Titus as a laundry list, and that's not what they're meant to be. If we are to be wise in our selection, and if we're to be honest in the submission that we offer to those that we select, then we must take a deeper look. We must go beyond what a man's actions, values, virtues, and relationships tell us about that individual, tell us about his character, and we must understand the responsibilities and the burden that we are placing upon him when we call upon him to be an elder. To that end, today's sermon is entitled, The Noble Task. My purpose is to highlight what our elders are called to do and provide some context for why the qualifications provided by Paul are so essential. Elders are mentioned in a number of verses in the New Testament. We can read about their qualifications. We can see how Paul and Barnabas appointed them as they went throughout uh, Asia Minor. And we can see that they were present in Ephesus. What we don't see so much are verses that talk about elders in action. As a result, we have to rely to some extent on what we can infer from the guidance they were given in the first century and to help us understand their roles and responsibilities. There are two very good examples of such guidance, one from Paul and the other from Peter, that we can use for such a reference. I'm going to ask you to turn to Acts chapter 20 for the first one. In Acts chapter 20, the apostle Paul summons the elders of Ephesus to join him in Miletus. Now, Paul is hurrying to Jerusalem, but he needs to stop and talk to these men. While he does not know what's going to happen in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit has warned that prison and hardship are coming to him. Paul knows that he will not see these men again in this life, and that this will be his last chance to solidify the legacy that he has worked so hard to establish through his preaching throughout the region. Take a look with me at Acts chapter 20 verses 28 through 31. These are Paul's words to those elders and his mandate to them as he leaves them with his legacy. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. The mandate Paul provided to those elders of Ephesus emphasized their responsibility to be guardians of the faith. 
He warned them of savage wolves from outside and distorters of the truth from within who would undermine the sacred message with which they had been entrusted. This is not a new warning. It is one that he has been pressing upon them for a three-year period, constantly and with tears. Peter's guidance, which can be found in 1 Peter chapter 5, has a bit of a different cast to it, and that's because it's got a different audience at a different time. Peter's guidance was to the elders of the church in the Roman provinces of Asia Minor. He sent it at the very moment in history when Nero was issuing an edict to the governors of those provinces, directing them to begin the persecution of Christians. Very hard times are coming to those who would follow Christ in this world. With this in mind, Peter appeals to those elders of Asia Minor, focusing on their responsibility as guardians of the faithful. Take a look with me at verses 1 through 4 of 1 Peter chapter 5. To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing honest gain, or dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Peter's words emphasize the manner in which they are to approach the task set before them, willingly, honestly, humbly. They were to be examples. The Greek word here is typos, which means a model or a template. And they are to stand for those who would be soon struggling under the lash of Nero's wrath. As we consider candidates for the eldership here in Annapolis, and as we serve under the authority of those elders in the future, we must not forget the vital dual nature of the mission that we have given them, because they are responsible before God to be guardians of both the faith and the faithful. Peter and Paul focused on different aspects of the task, but they both embrace a single word when they talk about the essence and the scope of the job. The word is shepherd. Now, when I was young, if you asked me what a shepherd did, it would be, my explanation would probably be a cross between my Bible description of David and a Looney Tunes cartoon that had uh, a sheepdog named Sam and a wolf named Ralph. Uh, for those of you who are too young to remember that 1960s-ish cartoon, you have a sheepdog and a wolf that check in at work together at the beginning of the day and then go their separate ways and spend the day with the wolf trying to take away the sheep and the sheepdog every time foiling his plans. So you can see how I might have been a little conflicted on what a shepherd really was all about. Today I want to focus for a few minutes on what it is to be a shepherd within the context that Paul and, and Peter used it. What does a shepherd do? First and foremost, a shepherd nurtures. The Greek word for shepherd used by Paul and Peter is koimaino, which means to feed and care for. In a spiritual sense, the elders are to oversee the nourishment of the flock with sound doctrine. Peter would have had a special appreciation for this particular mandate because it was one he received from Christ. Turn with me to John chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. John 21, 15 through 17.
I love to hear turning pages. John chapter 21, starting in verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of, poimino, my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Paul instructs Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. It is with this in mind that Paul tells Timothy that one who would be an elder must be able to teach. You see, instruction is an essential part of nourishing the flock. There's also a physical aspect of the elder's duty. It is implied in the directive that they, are be, that they be hospitable. It is clearly reflected in the direction James gave in James chapter 5, verse 14, when he said, Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and to anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Deacons are a critical element of the work in the congregation, and they are overseen by elders as they carry on the business of the church. All of these are physical aspects, but what I'm trying to express to you is that there are aspects of nurturing that bridge the spiritual and the physical, and we require our elders to be an essential part of all of these. A shepherd protects. Paul tells the Ephesian elders that they must watch over themselves and those entrusted to their oversight. It was not a passive reference. It's not just a warning to be aware of danger. It is a call for action in defense of the flock. This implies a couple of things that we need to be, be careful to remember. The first is that the shepherd knows his flock well enough to recognize trouble when he sees it. Jesus describes himself, himself as the good shepherd in John chapter 10 and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the, of the sheep, but climbs over in some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. They hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he get, goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of a stranger. While Christ is speaking of himself in this conversation with the Pharisees, his description of the, of the shepherd is apt. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in each church as they went through Asia Minor. And Paul specifically left Titus in Crete to appoint elders in every town. The reason that they did this was because the shepherd must know and must be known by the sheep. Familiarity enables them to promote good, to provide care, and to identify danger in a way that someone less familiar or more distant could never do. The second implication is that the shepherd will not hesitate to act to retrieve a lost sheep or fight off the wolf. Christ says a good shepherd keeps track of the wayward sheep. He says, what do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? 
If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 which have not gone astray. Not all sheep are cooperative when it comes to trying to return them to the fold. When you're dealing with, with people, excess shame or lack of shame for the sins that we commit can make us hard to approach and even harder to correct. Elders must be prepared to deal with this tendency. When Paul tells Timothy that an elder must not be violent but gentle and that he must be self-controlled, he is calling for a man who will offer correction when it's necessary, but to do so in a manner that shows sensitivity and love for the sheep. David makes clear that a good shepherd also protects his sheep from outside threats. When he's getting ready to face down Goliath, Saul challenges him and says, there's no way you can face this man. His response, your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. When he rose up against me, I seized him by the beard, struck him, and killed him. This is a shepherd in action. This is a proactive shepherd who sees the danger and retrieves the sheep from the jaws of death. Protecting the faith and the faithful may be the most difficult aspect of eldership because it requires the wisdom to recognize error and a willingness to confront it. Paul tells Titus that an elder must hold firmly to the trustworthy truth message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. That's Titus chapter 1, verse 9, if you'd like to take a look at that. That may mean challenging the savage wolf from the outside or rebuking those who would distort the truth from within. Neither of those are an easy task. Elders have a special responsibility to watch and respond when these things threaten our spiritual well-being, either as an individual or as a congregation as a whole. A shepherd guides. David was a shepherd. And in the 23rd Psalm, he describes God as the perfect shepherd. I'd like for you to listen as I read the 23rd Psalm, and I want you to think about it in the context of what it means to be a shepherd, the perfect shepherd, the shepherd that we call upon our elders to emulate. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's no mistake that the first three verses of David's psalm were dedicated to the shepherd who leads and takes the sheep to places where they benefit from that leadership. God's perfect leadership enables David to say, I shall not want, and surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. No mortal shepherd will provide that degree of perfect leadership. However, the man who lives to the standards that Paul identified for the elders, the qualifications that were described last week, one who is upright, holy, and disciplined, is already setting an example and showing a path of righteousness for others to follow. He is already a guide. My hope is that this morning you will combine what John said last week about the man and what I have to say about this week about the task as you consider, discuss, nominate, talk to, and select those who will be our elders here at Annapolis. 
May God bless us in our efforts to establish an eldership that will, that will nurture us, protect us, and guide us. We need that as we strive to be the people that God wants us to be. Will you bow with me, please? Our Father in heaven, how grateful we are that you are our God, that you are the true shepherd to all of us. We thank you, Father, for the church, this body which allows us to worship you together, to focus on you in a way that you deserve and warrant, to serve you in a way that you, that you are worthy of. Father, we thank you for elders, elders everywhere, who lead this body, who lead the church throughout the world, helping them to follow that path of righteousness, to be the example and the model for all of us for what we should be as your people. Father, we pray for this congregation as we seek those elders. May we be wise in our consideration. May we be wise in our deliberation. May we be kind and gentle with each other as we quest for the leader you would have us follow and for the people that we would be. Be with us, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, this morning's uh, sermon has been tailored for a specific need. We have a, we have a strong and faithful leadership. When we have strong and faithful leadership, we are stronger as a congregation. It's vital to our spiritual growth. However, the grace and mercy that leads to salvation is not something that we get from our leaders. They are a gift of God, made available to each of us through the sacrifice of his son on the cross. They are the gift that we as individuals must choose to embrace for ourselves through repentance, confession, and baptism. We would be remiss if we did not mention that in this pulpit this morning, because that is the essence of why we are here and who we are. And it is with that in mind that we offer an invitation to you. If you have not put on Christ in baptism, then you're missing something and your future is bleak. We invite you to join us. Arise and be baptized and put on Christ and put on eternity. Maybe you're a Christian who is, who is strayed or has suffered or is, or is in need of the prayers of the congregation. This too is an opportunity. Whatever your need may be, won't you come as we stand and sing?